0: So can you think of the last time you broke a bad habit or well any habit that was I guess that makes them all bad. Think of the last time. Uh, I was thinking about that this week in reference to where I wanted to go this week, and it was over 20 years ago. I was I still remember where I was. I was in my Impala, I was driving up to the only stoplight in Laurel, Montana. I was 19 years old, probably five or six months removed from graduating high school, and I made this decision that I was gonna stop cussing. Now, parenthetically. Let me just say that the conclusion to tonight's, this morning's message is not Christians don't cuss. It was just kind of where I was at in life. And I think I did better 20 years ago when I stopped than I do now. Um, but that's a separate conversation. Uh, what was going on in me was, I, I'd been sitting in the back row of this really neat church for about 20 years. And you've probably heard me talk about that. I'd become more and more connected to the community there. And I just—I think there was a part of me that just—I don't don't, guess I don't entirely know what it was. I think it had a lot to do with I just—I wanted to, to fit in a little bit better. And so I made this decision. And then, a few months later, I made this decision that I wanted to stop smoking. I picked it up at a camping trip in eighth grade before my freshman year, and frankly, smoked all the way through high school. And again, I'm not saying Christians don't smoke. Please don't hear me saying that this morning. But, but you know, it was about a half year after I graduated high school, I decided I was going to quit smoking, and frankly, I gained a lot of respect for how difficult that is. And what was going on by the smoking point was I had I'd, I'd raised my hand, so to speak, not raised my hand, but marked on a card that I would start helping with the middle school ministry there, and this was a mega church, It was a lot of kids in a gym on Sunday mornings, and I think I was becoming more and more aware that showing up smelling like a smoke bomb was awkward for me. I, I, was, I was getting more and more connected with my friend Fred, who you've heard me talk about, who I suppose by today's terms we would call him a, a spiritual director. He was kind of just this mentor to me who came alongside and helped me better envision what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he was an insurance agent. I'd go meet with him in his office. And he started, he, he, did, he, was a, he has a young life background, so he would do these Bible studies in his house, and I would go to those. And I think, again, I just had this sense of I don't want to smell like a smoke bomb when I go there. But the part, when, the, the reason I bring that up isn't to in any way make you feel bad about yourself if you do cuss. I, frankly, I, I st- rarely is it when I want to, but I still do. Uh, or feel bad about yourself if you're smoked, that's not really the point. What, what I, the reason I bring it up is when I look back on that season, and again, it was over 20 years ago, the thing that makes me really, really grateful, and, and, and the longer I live in, in Christendom and the longer I kind of understand Christian subculture, the more grateful it, it makes me. And, and this first really hit me when I was in seminary when I looked around the room and I just had this sense of not everyone's early Christian experience was like mine. And, and what makes me grateful was my motivation for, for quitting custody and my motivation for quitting smoking, it had nothing to do with a sermon I'd heard, it had nothing to do with someone like Fred pulling me aside and going, okay, Adam, you know the next step in following Jesus is you got to quit smoking. It had nothing to do with any of that. I mean, I, I look back and think, I, it must have been so odd like to roll into, like, Faith Chapel is the cleanest place in the world. It's this large church in Billings. And when I think about how I'd go meet with Jim, the middle school pastor, in his office, and I, I don't know if I showered first or whatever, but, but you know, like, if, if you smoke, you can't hide it. And I just, I think back of what that must have been like even for him And the fact that it never came up makes me extraordinarily grateful. And and the reason why is what I see in myself more and more is I have this incredible need and desire to manage the way I'm perceived. Like, I want to manage the the way you think about me and, and the impression that I make. And I think what that community established for me very early on was what's my priority isn't necessarily God's. That, that the Jesus game, though I don't think it's a game in a negative sense, that the way Jesus works, it's not to start with the externals, but to start with the internals. That he's quite confident in, in, in his culture, that he's quite secure in the way he works in lives, and he's glad to just invite you to follow him, and then trust that, that external stuff will follow. But again, what makes me grateful for that is the realization that that's difficult. And frankly, it's exceptionally rare among well-intentioned people trying to follow Jesus because managing the externals is the easy part. So here's what I want to do this morning. is We're, we're about to the end of the series. Next week will be the last. We started this conversation called Eternity is Now. I'm pillaging and plagiarizing a book by John Hartberg called "Eternities Now in Session. If you want to take this conversation deeper, I'd love to point you to some resources beyond this series. But what we've been saying, we're trying to provoke the thought in you, is this like, what, what if eternal life isn't about where you go when you die? What if it's about the with God life now? And the conversation we tried to start last week was this, the practical side of how. Like, how, how do we do that? How do we be transformed? And this this is a 2,000-year-old question, and part of the reason why it's a 2,000-year-old question without clear answers is because Jesus, despite all of his effort and the gospel accounts we have of his life and guys like Paul's accounts of how, what he took from Jesus' life, he, he, didn't, he didn't establish a school, he didn't write a book. He, he frankly, in, in our sense of the word, he didn't create a curriculum. And so we're left well-intentioned people going, okay, so how do we fill in the gap between the invitation to follow and the promise that you can become like, like how do we fill in that gap? And I think there's lots and lots of different ways of thinking about that. And what we're doing in this series is going, there's one centuries old way that moves through these four points. And it's a cycle, it's not a linear line. We talked last week about monopoly, that it's like this idea, you pass go over and over and over. And the first of those we talked about last week is this idea of awakening. That there are these moments in life where we become, in modern scientific terms, I suppose we would call it self-awareness or emotional intelligence. There's these moments where you're standing next to somebody or you're reading something or you're listening to something. It's almost always attached to a relationship, but, but not always. And there's this sense of, I want a parent like that. Uh, I want to I talk to people like that. I, I want to think like that. And again, there's that fine line between the external perception and the internal heart piece. So this morning we're going to look at this idea of purgation, which is this word I'd never used before, but it's kind of this classic historical church word and it really speaks to this idea that, that God, God is really, really into heart transformation, not behavior modification. Or the way John Ortberg says it in his book, and I think it's an appropriate thing in our current times to really wrestle with, he, he, he says that, that God wants to deal with the evil in us, and then through us, deal with the evil outside of us. And the easy thing to do, and I think we all know this, is to, to point to evil but not see it in ourselves. This is the, 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 the classic tension. So, what we're gonna do is explore this idea of purgation. And for me, the, the jumping off point, Jesus said something at the start of his most famous sermon. And if you've been here for years, you've heard me talk about this probably. If if you, I think, for better and for worse, if someone were to hyperanalyze my own theological disposition and Bias and just, you know, where my opinion happens, it really the center of it for me is something Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 5. It's a loaded phrase, uh, there's different ways that people think about it, but Dallas Willard has influenced the reason you hear me say Divine Conspiracy is the most important book in my life, other than the Bible, is because of the way J- Dallas understands this particular verse. And if you understand this verse, Divine Conspiracy makes more sense. Here we go. Jesus says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, hopefully by now, if not before, kingdom of heaven has a different meaning for you, that we're not talking about life after death, we're talking about the with God life now. So what's not going on here is Jesus is saying, if if you're going to be loved by God, you better be better than the scribes and Pharisees. That's not actually at all what he's saying. What he's saying in terms of righteousness is if you're going to experience the with God, Jesus kind of life now, you got to do well what the Pharisees and the scribes failed to do. Well, what was that? Who were they? Well, they were the spiritual giants. They're the people whose podcasts you were listening to and books you were reading. They're, they're the people, frankly, uh, like me, so to speak, I guess. They're the authorities. They're the ones with the microphones. And Jesus is calling them out. But in particular, what is he calling out? And to answer that question, one way is just to follow where his words go after he says it. He says this, You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Question, what does Jesus think the problem is? Murder? Or something internal. See, part of what Jesus does, and if you go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you'll do that in your chair time this week. You'll see what he's constantly doing is contrasting what he thinks versus what the conventional wisdom was. And conventional wisdom had everything to do with Christians don't smoke, like you just don't. And he's going, it's really not about that. Conventional wisdom says you don't murder, and he's going, yeah, but murder's actually just the symptom of something internal, anger and contempt. He keeps going. Uh, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here again is this contrast. There's this tendency to look the part. And yet, what Jesus is addressing is you can look the part, you can even live the part externally. And internally, you can be a wreck, you can be a mess. He's arguing, "My, My priority is your heart. It's not just the externals. My my belief is that things flow from from in to out. He he even even attacks, and this is what really gets him in trouble with with the Pharisees, he even goes after the way we think about spiritual expression. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Again, what's he contrasting? What's externally evident versus what's internally evident? True. Now, there's some tippy-toeing that has to happen here, but I I, frankly it's it's a coincidence. It wasn't mine like I I was going this direction long before any of our current events happened, but I, I think it's it's kind of a case in point that part of what we're observing is a person can set out to do really good things. And if their heart's not right, they're they're more likely to make a mess than help anyone. I think we can see that being very true of what amounts to unhealthy police officers. But I think if we're being fair, we can also flip the script and see, we can also see that being very true of social justice pioneers. That, that there's a way of focusing on the right thing, but being very wrong inside. And in my opinion, the conversation culturally that Jesus would bring to the table is one about anger and contempt. And that, 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 that flows in every direction. Why? Because Jesus is going, listen, that, that's the work God wants to do. And in fact, if you read Dallas Willard's work, what he'll say is if we eliminate anger and contempt from the human scene, then we're still left with some work to do, but not very much. But that's the driving issue. And in a murder, it's very evident. But in someone like me, who, who's a parent or a community member or any number of other roles that I play, it's easily hidden and couched. And Paul said in Philippians, we, we jumped off of this one last week, work out your salvation. Jesus says this thing r- repeatedly in the Gospels, and it, I don't like it when I read it. I feel like it's on every other page, but he'll say, you all are like whitewashed tombs. You look so good on the outside, but inside you're a wreck. And I used to read that and go, man, those Jewish people, they had it all wrong. It's not the way I read it 20 years into trying to follow Jesus. I think there's a level of compassion in what Jesus is saying because I think what he's observing is it's way easier to fall into line and start doing the externals. Quitting smoking, quitting cussing, that, that's, that's easy compared with dealing with the contempt and anger in your heart. That, that For me, when I read that now, I actually see hope that God knows. I mean, one thing I know that's true of me, and there's some people in the room who know it as well, but not very many, is that I'm not any I'm not anywhere near as good as my Sunday morning voice makes me sound. And probably the same thing's true of you. And Jesus isn't judging that. He's going, that's the starting place. Like my work is to do the internal work and let that flow out from that place. And the way we have that is we, we encounter someone who's got something that maybe God has given them that we don't have, someone who's doing something that maybe we've not seen before. I think of it, and maybe this is a trivial example, but you know, I, I've been around baseball my whole life. I started playing at a very young age. I played all the way through high school. I've, I've followed the Cardinals since I was seven years old. We've never had cable, but I've always read box scores in the newspaper. I, I've, I've loved baseball. Um, but in the last few years, I've had this chance to coach with a guy, some, some of you may know him, his name is John Doran. He's this remarkable guy in the community, he works at Blue Cross Blue Shield, he was a D1 baseball player, he was a scout for uh, the Diamondbacks and other clubs. And, and I just shamelessly, I've started going like, hey, I'll coach with you so that my kid can get coached by him, and he likes him, and then I just like step out of the way. In fact, at our coaches meeting, our parent meeting this last year, my, me and my friend Jay, who basically what we do is we sign up to coach with him, and then we give him the team, but we show up and put the ball in the tee. Uh, at, at the parents' meeting, he, he started the parents' meeting by, well, he didn't start it by saying this, but at one point he said, so between the three of us, we've coached five major league baseball players. And I went like, hey, can we just call it what it is? Like, by between the three of us, we're talking about John. So, so John knows baseball unlike anybody I've ever seen. He'll coach hitting, and I feel like I've never seen a bat before. And We were doing this practice in 326 a few weeks ago, and it was, it was raining and we were doing this indoor practice and he instructed for 10 minutes and then he turned to Jay and I and he goes, hey, do you guys have anything to add? I'm like, who are you kidding? No, we don't have anything to add. I think that's what purgation is in a maybe trivializing sense where we bump into not the judgment of God but the invitation of God, oftentimes in another person and we go, ah, oh, that's what that looks like. There's a story of this in Peter's life. Peter was... Well, it was really about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is teaching along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This crowd is kind of crowding in on him. They're suffocating him. It's getting a little hot, maybe. He turns to Peter, because he sees Peter is in his fishing boat, he, having fished all night. He says, to, hey, Peter, hey, do you mind if I jump into your boat, and then you can push out, and I'll teach from there, and then I won't get so suffocated by the crowds. And Peter's like, yeah, sure. And so Jesus, they do that. He teaches. We don't know how long he teaches. Eventually, the, the crowd dissipates, or he stops talking, uh, stops hitting record. I don't, I don't know what the context for end that teaching was. But then he turns to Peter and he says, hey Peter, let's, let's go do some fishing. Now I think it's easy to miss just how patronizing of a statement that was. Because first of all, it's the middle of the afternoon. You don't fish in the middle of the afternoon. I was just talking, there was a kid this week in the dugout who's like, I love to fly fish. And I said, do you fly cast or fly fish? Because I hate fishing because all I know how to do is fly cast. He said, no, no, I catch fish. Well, the issue with Peter was he, they hadn't caught any fish that night. But part of what you have to recognize is that Peter was a fisherman, And his father was a fisherman and probably his grandfather was a fisherman. Peter was a mutter and his mother was a mutter. With with me on that one? Jesus was a tecton. He was a stonemason. We often call it carpenter. Probably he worked with with, with stone. He probably helped build the city of Sepphoris, which was this Greek city right next to Nazareth. That was Jesus' role. And so you've got the carpenter turning to the fisherman and going, hey, let me tell you how to fish. And Peter, he obliges. and He's like, oh, okay, Sure. But let's let me know, letting you know, it, it's, it didn't go well last night. So they go fishing, and of course, Jesus is with you. So what are you going to do? You're going to catch all these fish. And they catch so many fish that Peter and his buddies and their other boat, they bring them into the boat, and the boats are sinking. And then listen to what Luke says is Peter's response, because I think this is what purgation looks like. But when Simon Peter saw it, speaking of the catch, which frankly doesn't sound much like church, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me. Lord, from a sinful man. Now, I think one of the questions is, is that a statement of self-hatred? Or is that a statement of just pure adoration for the person he's with? Like, there's a way of watching somebody else parent that actually becomes about you because you just hate the way you do in comparison to them. And then there's a way of watching somebody else parent that causes you to go, man, Lord, if I could have that heart, that would be awesome. See, I don't think this is a statement of self-hatred from Peter. I think this is, first of all, a statement about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is more than just a rabbi, that there's something Jewish going on here about this is God because you don't fall on your face before another rabbi. But it's also what happens when we see in someone else what God wants to be true of us. You know, this, this week has, has been a, a pretty invigorating conversation among the staff, and we've spent a lot of time because... Tommy, who's new to the staff and also new to Helena, obviously brings a context and an understanding of so many of these, the nuances of what's happening nationally that, that those of us who've born and raised in Montana, I think all, all of us, it's just foreign to us. I think that's the process of purgation, of going, oh, wow, there's stuff that I can learn. But again, and this is where I respect where we've landed, let's not do the trendy thing. Let's let's start on the inside and make sure that this this becomes true of the way we think. You know, on Father's Day, I've asked Justin t- to speak on Father's Day, and it- it's-, it's not just because I want a week off. That had- really has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the fact that I've been around Justin for the last five years from the baseball world, and I've watched him talk to parents, and I've watched him talk to players, and I've watched him talk to his kids, and quite frankly, there- there's not a dad out there that I have more respect for. I just... I admire the way he parents and interacts with others. And so the question was, hey, would you just, I don't care what you talk about, whatever you talk about, I want to learn it from you as a a parent. So there's a way of religiousizing purgation, but there's also, there's a way to remember what Henry Cloud says, that we learn almost nothing outside of the context of relationship, which I don't think trivializes God. It reminds us that, that God is fundamentally a God of image bearers. And chances are, if I spend time with you, I'm going to learn something that that God has done in you and that you're good at, and I'm going to be drawn towards that, and ideally, conversely. So really, it becomes a question of stewardship, I think, of what, what are the internal things that God's talking to you about? And yeah, there's a permission to repent, and there's a permission to confess, and there's a permission to even acknowledge to others who you've hurt, but there's also this permission to learn and to grow and to invite the God of transformation to transform you so that you can in turn transform. You know, there's this, this story that you've, some of you have heard me tell before, but again, as I think about all this stuff, it's fundamental to the way I think about God and church. It's, it's why I have this strong passion that we don't want to be a telling culture and it, it happened around that same season when I was working on what for me were superficial things, but a community was modeling to me an internal thing. There was, there was, so, so Fred had this reputation of being really good at following Jesus and really good at helping people with their marriages. And he wasn't a pastor, he was an insurance agent. But there was this couple who asked to start meeting with him who I, I'm going to guess they were in their mid-30s. I, I didn't know them. Fred just kind of told me this story. And now I can look back and appreciate why he told me this story. But the story was that this couple asked to start meeting with them because their marriage was in a t- pretty tough spot. But it turns out they were actually a pretty prominent couple from within the Billings community. And especially they were prominent because they, they owned and operated two of the biggest bars in Billings. And of course, there's lots of bars in Billings, but these were the two, like these, these were the popular bars. One of them was the bar that if you were 19 and had a fake ID, this is the bar you wanted to go to. Or if you were you know, home from college and you had a real ID, this is the bar. The other one was that if you were 40 years old and probably had a middle-class income and a white-collar, this is the bar you would go to. And the, the other one was somewhat infamous. I, I remember, it wasn't far from my grandparents' house, but I also remember that part of the the community conversation was that in the last in the couple years prior to this, the, the more white-collar bar ha- had, had a couple drug stings go through it, and, and it had been demonstrated that there was a lot of cocaine and a lot of methamphetamine th- flowing through that bar, which kind of exposed the fact that those aren't just... You know, drug addict issues, but, but stay-at-home parent issues and business people issues, that kind of thing. And so when people heard that this couple was meeting with Fred, and especially when they heard that they had responded to his invitation to follow Jesus, they started approaching him and saying, Hey, so Fred, you're going you're gonna to talk to them about owning those bars, right? And Fred, Fred was adamant. He, he, he would say, No, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. And I'm going to trust that Jesus will talk to them about owning bars if that's something that he wants to do. And he, he stood that ground. And I think we could all agree that that could be abused as well. Everything has nuances. But that was the ground he stood on. And several months in, it might have even been more like a year into their relationship. And this is the story, as he told it to me, that they showed up to meet with him, which was their kind of routine every couple weeks. And they started the conversation by saying, hey, Fred, we're thinking about selling the bars. And he's like, really? And he just played totally coy, didn't allude to anything. Really, he said. What, what, why? And they said, well, we understand. Like it's, it, it's not that you can't be a Christian and a bar, but in our case, it feels like every time we pray, every time we go to church, every time we open up this conversation with God, God is talking to us about selling the bars. And so they said, so what do you think? And he just smiled and said, boy, that sounds like a great idea to me. What if that's the way Jesus works in our lives? And again, I I understand we can abuse that and we could do nothing in the name of that. But what if that is the Jesus default? A God who isn't primarily prioritizing, making us look the part, but a God who's perfectly comfortable having us not look the part at all, but do the internal work. I think the question would then become, What's the thing God has for you? Like what in this season, What's the thing God's talking to you about, the thing that maybe you have acknowledged, you have confessed? maybe there's this theme in the podcast you listen to, or the books that you're reading or the conversations you're having? What's the thing? And what does it look like for you to invite God deeper into that thing, whether that's a conversation with a therapist or a spiritual director or a coach, whether that's grabbing coffee with the staff, whether that's forming a small group or actually disclosing it to your small group or finding a book on it. What does it look like? Because remember, we talked about it's the monopoly board. We're not going to go through purgation once. It's this process. And I think there's this really fine line where we can overly focus on what's wrong with us, and that would probably not be a good thing, but we can also recognize that, that God is this God who's, who's, who's making image bearers. And that his goal for me and his goal for you is that 10 years from now, you, you, you'd be repulsed at the person that you were 10 years ago. That you would recognize there's this growing character in you that looks more and more like God and less and less like you in that previous nature. And if, if, if you're like, I don't have one of those, here's where I think Jesus becomes so relevant. It becomes a dare. Just, in fact, in a second, I'm going to pray, and I would just say, like, just over my blabbing voice, just, just in the confines of your chair, just say, God, I dare you. If you're really real, if you're really there, if you really work this way, point something out to me. And you just see if over the next days there's not a theme, whether it's stuff you hear on the radio or, I, I dare you, see if God doesn't bring to the surface a theme for you. Not because he doesn't love you until he does that, but because God's process is kingdom bringers, living eternity now. So let me pray. God, thanks for my friends here who, like they can name it, they can put their finger on it. And maybe they're already committed to it, maybe this is that, that ninth time that just prompts them to actually lean in, to, to call the therapist, to, to buy the book. To start the journal, whatever that looks like for them to steward, what's next for them with you and God? For friends who are, they're here because on some level they're intrigued, or maybe even there's some some sideways stuff happening in their relationships. Uh, Got our, our scientific friends would call it self-awareness or emotional intelligence, and, and we embrace those ideas and also recognize that for thousands of years people have pointed to the invisible spirit of the holy who shows up in our lives and makes invitations and then we get to choose whether or not to accept them. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.